Welcome to the Philip K. Dick Book Club. In each episode of this podcast, I look at one of the works uh, of Philip K. Dick. Um, and currently, we're going through the, the short stories of, of 1954. Uh, in this episode, we'll be looking at James P. Crow, a story of segregation and racism, and uh, a kind of one of Dick's, some, one of several stories by Dick that comments on, on the 1950s struggle against racism in the United States. Um, but first, one quick little announcement. I'm kind of changing what I've been doing with the bumpers. That's the the music that begins and ends um, the episodes. It's kind of a necessity for podcasts. It's a pretty standard thing. Um, it just takes a lot of time for me to try to find music that's kind of thematically tied and then, you know, find a copy and cut it up into small chunks, you know. So you know, for fair use reasons. It's just a lot, it's time consuming and it requires a lot of thought. So what I decided to do instead was just to take one piece of, you know, this is, and, and use that for the entire series. And I'll do something a little bit different with the uh, mainline podcast, the 100 pages cast. But this is um, going to be the this is going to be the bumper for the rest of this series. It's John Dowland, who is one of Philip Dick's favorite composers. He was a late 16th, early 17th century composer. He kind of was lived around the same time as Shakespeare, or, you know, kind of during Queen Elizabeth's reign. He wrote many, many songs and lute pieces. That's what he was most famous for. Now, Dick liked him so much that he actually used one of his lute pieces as the foundation or this name of one of his novels flow my tears the policeman said flow my tears is actually a, a john dowland song now unfortunately that particular song is not uh, available as far as i know in in public domain uh, so i had to pick this one this uh particular song is come heavy sleep um which is quite nice um i'm sure philip dick listened to it and enjoyed it so anyways, that's what's going to go on with the bumpers um, for now. But if, if you have if you know of any songs that or music that Philip Dick really liked, uh, especially classical music, you know, that stuff you can usually find um, fairly easily. And there's old recordings that are that are accessible. So I would um, I'd be I'd love to hear about them and I might change it. But for now, I'm going to stick with this John Dowland piece. Anyways, um, getting into the story, James P. Crow. James P. Crow was published in Planet Stories in May of 1954. And you can read it in the collected stories of Philip K. Dick, Volume 2. We can remember it for you wholesale, the Total Recall volume. Um, I've been... All right, into the, into the story itself. Um, so we have a boy playing chess with a robot at the beginning. And... Donnie, the boy, is called a nasty little human being by the robot. And this act of kind of, of essentially racism is what it is. It's all a very loose metaphor, barely hidden at all, metaphor for Southern segregation and the white domination, 
white supremacy in, in the South at the time. Remember, th this story was published at the same time that the Board of um, Brown versus Board of Education decision was being um, dis you know, worked out in the Supreme Court. So, and segregation would not fall for another decade even after that fully in the South with the Civil Rights Acts. But, so it, it's, a, it's a metaphor for this problem in the South, but it's told as a story between humans and, and robots. Now, Donnie has his two parents, Ed and Grace Parks. Um, they're working class, as all humans are in this society. And they discuss what happens. They're concerned for Danny, Donnie. They're really upset about the, how the robot treats them, but it's really Ed who's the most angry. Grace sort of uh, is a doesn't want to let anger drive her so much because she sort of has other plans for the boy, as, as we soon learn. Ed is fatalistic. He's angry, but he realizes there's nothing that can be done. The robot's control all of society and humans depend on robots entirely to run civilization there's a lot of shout outs at this point to other stories dick wrote about human dependence on technology stories like um, some kinds of life or autofact which i haven't looked at yet but uh, even solar lottery to a degree where you have humanity being almost fully dominated and controlled by some type of technology in this case, it's robots who run society. There are all, however, competitive examinations called lists that allow people to move up. And we're reminded of things like the Indian Civil Service Exam, which in theory allowed Indians to move up in British society. I think the French in Southeast Asia had the same kind of system. Unfortunately, you know, there was a they could only go up so far, right? They they were in theory meritocratic and competitive, but in reality, there's only so far that Indians or Vietnamese or, or people in these colonial societies could go up. Um, and this is the problem with merit meritocracies in general, is that they don't often acknowledge kind of institutional inequalities or more systemic racism and violence and things that get in the way of this equality, especially when it's the people in charge who make the exams and make the rules and kind of are the gatekeepers for who comes in, right? So it almost becomes a justification for injustice. Uh, the merit, the argument of merit. So, you know, in general, I'm not a big, I'm not a supporter of meritocracy. It might be better than aristocracy, um, but I think in practice, merit meritocracy tends to be quite, uh, or perpetuates inequalities. Now, the only areas where humans have a little bit of power and autonomy within society is in things that robots can't do well, and that's cooking, food, and entertainment. So that's kind of a fun little point he makes uh, robots can't taste there's this Futurama episode where Bender the robot tries to become a, a great chef but he can't you know, taste it's, it's rather humorous mostly though humans are working as laborers in this story that the vast majority the vast majority of humanity are just servants and laborers so Ed and Donnie they're having kind of the father-son talk and they discuss the list. Donnie's preparing for these. Donnie's trying to pass these tests. And Ed explains to Donnie that although the lists allow any human who tests in the top 40% to be eligible for an advanced classification, basically the pathway into social mobility and the bureaucracy, never have a, has a human passed these exams. They're just not smart enough. And he says, you're not going to be smart enough either. Even if you're the smartest human, you're not going to be able to, you're not going to be smarter than a robot. And you're not going to pass these tests because they're, they're designed for robots to pass. They're not designed for humans to prove their merit. 
Ed then goes on to explain very somberly that he found meaning in his job as a body servant and that maybe you can too. Don't have don't dream too high because it's not gonna nothing's gonna come of it. Now Grace holds out hope. This is the mother. There's a small equality party among the robot leaders that maybe wants to open up more pathways to human social mobility. But there's also one human who passed the lists last, in, 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 10 years earlier. And it's almost mythical, rumored. I, I don't know why. It's not really clear why there's played with this idea that this figure is mythical because it seems to be public record. Um, but it's almost as if we talked about like this, uh, like the, that if you know, a politician was a myth, mythical figure in some way. Uh, even we could just look him up on the TV, right? There he is. But there seems to be a debate among the humans how real this person is. But anyway, he, 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 he's kind of destined to become a class one. That's where the story goes, meaning the top bureaucracy. And his name is James P. Crow. But Ed thinks this is just an old story. It doesn't really mean anything. It doesn't, it's not true. So Ed's coworker, Bob McIntyre, who's a minor character in the story, confirms the truth of the existence of James P. Crow. And he says, no, 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 this guy's real. You know, he's an actual person. He's actually in power. And he also tells the story of the background. So after a total war, humans took over control of society. They molded it and directed it to evolve away from anarchy and destruction. And right away here, we have a shout out to stories like The Defenders. In the, in the story of The Defenders, which is one of his earliest tales, robots rebuilt the earth after a war while humans were kind of kept underground lied to they were told the war keeps going on but on the surface they're kind of preparing the world for a future in that story this is presented kind of benevolently these robots are kind of doing an important work in preparing humanity for an age of peace here it's a more insidious and and kind of vile image but it's still based because it's robots still decided humans can't control society anymore because they're they tend towards violence and anarchy. They instead need to have a rational, ordered society that they can establish. And as leaders of the Reconstruction, robots remained in power, and they kept on directing the development of society to the future. They never let go of that power. Um, at the time, they were necessary because they had to fix the Earth, but once the Earth was fixed up, civilization could recover from the war, the robots didn't give up their power. Now, Crow... James P. Crow was an ordinary repairman who passed the tests, which is kind of, he wasn't a scholar, he wasn't a scientist, he wasn't a great mind necessarily, he was just a repairman. Dick very much liked the figure of the repairman, the tinkerer. He plays with it in Dr. Blood Money, he plays with it certainly in The Variable Man, so he was a big fan of this figure. The robots don't like him, but they're forced to accept him because that's the law, and that's the laws that they made. Um, so, then we jump to another scene, with, which, is, which has James P. Crow himself. He's in his office reflecting on how clever his name was. And, and we know it's a pun on Jim Crow, the system of racial segregation in the South. But none of the robots would understand it. And it's not clear why none of the robots would get that. It seems it'd be easy to look up. But he's, he, he, maybe they're, they're very literal. James, Jim, P. They, they, the P maybe tricks them. But they don't realize the connection that he's actually kind of a civil rights activist. Now, at this point, there's a very interesting scene where Crow issues an order to a robot and that robot 
you know, is going to drag its feet. Crow thinks the robot will drag its feet during the task because it begrudges the, f the fact that it must serve a human. So the imagery of the white south towards blacks was that they were lazy and foot dragging, they didn't work hard. That is being turned around here, where it's actually the, the robot who's in power in the society is the foot dragger. Another robot enters asking Crow to attend an equality party meeting. So this robot apparently is supportive with Crow of, of this equality party. Crow tells it that humans are, will never be the equals of robots. And he hints that he has a solution to this problem. And he'll re reveal it once he becomes a class one um, person, basically when he enters the top ranks of the bureaucracy. So Crow goes off alone to the Terran security building. He passes robots. These robots avoid him or politely acknowledge him. And you have humans who look at him with awe. He visits the personal quarters he grew up in as a child during one of his lunch breaks. He sits before a set of machines and places a tape scanner into the window. You know, Dick wasn't the best predictor of future technologies. In fact, few science fiction writers did a very good job at this. There's a recently I read an article about you know, asking the question, why didn't, why didn't science fiction writers predict the internet? You know, maybe a few did, but it's they started writing about the internet. The cyberpunk tradition came out when the internet was already alive and well. There was no one like that many people anyway, and none that I know of, back in the fifties and forties, predicting something like the internet. And here you had, of course, Dick. Dick's time you had the real, real tape recorders and 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 film recorders and things. And he just kind of makes it into a cassette tape. But this is a very special one. Uh, he puts it in the machine and it starts to play. And it lacks him, lacks, lets him see into the future. He's actually looking into the future lists. So he, he sees two robots going through the lists. And this is a scanner that reads the future. He's actually seeing the answers. So he's cheated. That's how James P. Crow got in one. He cheated because he has this kind of future telling device. And this way it's very much like Paycheck. Paychecks kind of plays with the same idea of kind of cheating a system by being able to read the future. In fact, James P. Crow never could have passed this without this future scanner because the lists were prepared by robots and the list test catered to their minds. It's, it was almost by design something humans can ever pass. He takes his scanner, um, which also can view the past back in time to the creation of the first robots four centuries earlier. And he, and he starts to look back on that. And that's where we leave James P. Crow. Now we return to Ed and Donnie and Ed is comforting Donnie because Donnie failed the lists. He failed the tests at home. Grace is excited by the news that James P. Crow has passed kind of the highest level of the lists and made it into the class one allowing him to enter the Supreme Ruling Council. We actually almost have almost a Chinese-style civil service exam system where each level, if you want to go higher, you have to pass a more difficult and a more, uh, you know, a, a test, a, an exam with fewer um, success. I think the, the, the highest level test in the Chinese civil service exam only had like less than 1% passage rate or something. It was really difficult. So James P. Crow enters the Ruling Council. The robots don't want to fully accept him, but Crow asserts that he scored a perfect score on 20 distinct lists and that he was technically superior because no robot has ever achieved a perfect score. Crow gets right to business and proposes that all the robots leave Earth. They protest. They say they created Earth 
They're the ones who created this planet in its current form, not humans. Humans relinquished their rights due to their violent natures. But Crow shows some tapes from the time scanner showing the origin of the robots. And Crow proves that the original robots were invented to be soldiers and servants of hum humanity. One of them protests that this changes nothing. It only proves that robots develop through evolution to their contemporary superiority. Right? It doesn't matter that humans started as you know, monkeys, just like it doesn't matter that robots started out as servant machines. And another one points out, obviously, that if you have a time window, if you have a time machine, that's why you got a perfect score. It's, you know, you basically admitted you cheated there. But Crow threatens to release the tapes, proving that robots were creations of humans to the public, you know, hoping this would cause some kind of mass uprising if the robots don't leave. The Supreme Council then determines that Venus, Mars, and Ganymede, the, the moon of Jupiter, could be reserved for the robots. Humans will remain on Earth and not be allowed to visit robots. And when a robot sympathetic to the Equality Party asks Crow who will rule Earth now, Crow simply smiles, implying that he will be the one in charge. So actually, when we think of this as almost a, a metaphor of, of racism, uh, of racial segregation, and, and kind of the institutions of uh, that empowered whites in, in Southern society. It's rather interesting that the solution to this is total racial segre segregation, right? There's no attempt really to work out a better deal between the humans and the robots. It becomes simply robots must leave and humans and robots must never touch each other again. Um, so it's kind of a bittersweet ending and a little bit unsatisfying to me because it's simply, it doesn't really envision it doesn't envision integration it, it's more like envisioning nationalism as the solution right really creating two like the two-state solution almost well i mean it is what it is but so how can we analyze this story the allegory in james p crow is obvious to anyone reading this story it's missed on the robots, um, and Dick points that out, but anyone reading it would have known that James P. Crow is Jim Crow. The story is about the American South. Now, Dick did not often push this racial theme in his stories, but it's prominent enough for us to think that Dick is indeed on the right side of history. Right In The Hanging Stranger, he deals with racial injustice. In Tony and the Beatles, he's dealing with... A kind of post-colonialism. There are other stories that deal with this colonial dynamic and racial dynamics. And then I think his best work on this is The Crack in Space, which is a it's a novel about a lot of things. It's one of my favorites by him, but it's it's about race, it's about overpopulation, it's about the generational conflict, but you know, you know, it is it is the clearest example of a story about race is The Crack in Space. So, but we want to think Dick is on the right side of history, but this story is tricky and we need to be careful with it. James P. Crow, the character who manipulates the time window, cheats on standardized civil service exams and then manipulates the robots who ruled humans. Is he opponent of segregation or is he advocating it? He believes the way that humans, robots treated humans by institutionalizing their social inferiority, by crafting these very difficult exams, exams that only robots can pass, but then opening them up to all is unjust, right? And so it's only fair that humans hack the system essentially, right? Because it's unfair to begin with. It's the unwinnable 
right? It's, it's, it's James Kirk, right? Cheating on the Kobayashi Miru. You know, he doesn't want to accept an unwinnable scenario. But his ultimate solution is to separate humans and robots. And he even confesses that humans are inferior to robots in at least certain levels of aptitude. And the solution is then to actually deintegrate the world. Now, I don't think Dick believed there was an intellectual difference between blacks and whites. He wasn't a racist uh, in my reading of him at all. Um, he's sometimes blinkered by race, and he doesn't probably say enough about it. And he could have said more. But he does try from time to time to do that. So I think he's generally on the right side of history here. But this is a troubling case because it's stated throughout the story that robots are superior intellectually to humans. Um, where humans can achieve is an art, in food, some physical competitions, entertainment, comedy. So, but generally humans are presented here as inferior. And in many ways, James P. Crow is closer to a, to a black nationalist and a civil rights advocate calling for, for integration because he's saying the solution at the end is separation. Now, we need to remember um, some things about the institutionalization of racism in the United States before the civil rights movement. And despite the name, it might want us to think about the society as in some ways as, as Jim Crow South, but it has elements of slavery too in the fact that the humans were kind of all put down as, as laborers. It's a very, it's an integrated world, actually. Humans and robots seem to work and live together. They may not like each other much, but they, they're, they're close in a social safety net, right? Now, slavery was many things, but it wasn't segregated, right? You had white overseers working alongside blacks. You often had white day laborers working on the plantations alongside slaves, you had masters raping enslaved women. In many ways, it's, it was much more integrated than segregation that you had in the early 20th century uh, up until the 1950s and 60s. Now, here clearly the robots in James P. Crow are exploiting the labor of humans, defending their own political position by crafting institutions so that humans simply can't compete. Um, now, slavery doesn't really work this way, but most meritocracies certainly do work this way. Right? The game is rigged, whether you're a slave, though, or you're someone who will be unable to pass the test. Either way, your status in society is predetermined based on your birth. And I suppose we could even say it was theoretically possible for some slaves to get out of slavery, to kind of move their way up. Um, there are examples of slaves who bought their freedom, were able to get a property. Um, I think Denmark Vesey, who planned a slave revolt in Charleston. He, he, he won a lottery, and that's how he was able to buy his freedom eventually. But now in the aftermath of slavery, when the major institution of social control over of whites over blacks gave way, and that was slavery. Slavery was the major tool of white supremacy in the early 19th century. But when this gave way, you had imposition of segregation. Segregation replaces this becoming a new tool of white supremacy alongside violence and uh, disfranchisement and, and, you know, lack of access to schools and, and, and economic oppression and sharecropping and, and debt farming and all these things. But even if, you know, this segregation never stopped whites from like leasing their land to black sharecroppers, for instance. So you still had 
despite segregation, you still had some crossover, right? Now, what James P. Crow suggests as a solution really is total segregation. It's it's closer to the dispossessed, where you have Anaris and Urus and Anaris, I think they are. And this is uh, Ursula Le Guin's story, where there's actually laws against the two connecting, right? Yeah, the anarchists could go off to Urus and live their life, but no one could ever communicate. You know, there was ban travel bans. That's kind of what's being proposed here. So there's no parallel for any kind of multiracial society or a multiracial solution to this problem. In short, if we're taking James P. Crow as an allegory for American race relations, the ending we face here is really troubling. And this is above and beyond the strong suggestion that Crow was working to become a dictator of those who stayed behind. His little wink or smile at the end is basically him saying, you know, these you, you prepared a population of people who will be you know, easily controlled by me. Now, what I find also fascinating about the story is is the not so subtle attempt at racial politics, which I, as I already said, I think it's very problematic, and I'm not sure really where it gets us as an answer to racism and white supremacy. But there's a lot of interesting stuff in the story about institutions, about meritocracy, about freedom, and about agency. The robots here save humanity from war, and they rebuilt it in their image. And that's their claim. They say, this world belongs to us because we made it. As time went on, the system got more and more complicated. The robots can't even answer all the questions on their own competitive exams, suggesting there's intelligence differences among the robots. Not all robots are programmed to be omniscient, or at least as omniscient as possible, given the, the knowledge of the time. That's so actually a question I had when I read it, is why doesn't, why aren't all the robots just programmed with all knowledge? Why would they? Why would anyone fail any of the, the lists? Now, when Lewis Mumford writes about the dangers of the quote-unquote the machine, and for him the machine, he's this writer from the 40s and 50s, and he wrote about the machine. What he meant by this was the total institution of kind of labor and production and, and kind of you know, across society. And each, each civilization will have its own the machine. You know, and he even talks about the ancient Egyptians having you know a machine based on you know, whatever built the pyramids, right? The, the systems that went into building that. Now, sure, here we have technocrats who understand how electrical grids work, or we have nuclear physicists who can talk about how nuclear plants function, and we have accountants who can balance the books of a Fortune 500 company yeah, or create subprime mortgages and package up securities into, you know, to make money off them. They can do all that stuff. But most of us, don't really have much say over how the institutions around us work, right? We turn on the light and we get electricity, and that's all we know about it. We, we, most of us, if we're on a desert island, couldn't figure out how to get electricity, right? We're dependent on other people, and even the people who know a lot are dependent on other people for everything else that they don't know about. We are part of this system, and we don't have a lot of control. This is something that bothered Philip K. Dick a lot, Right? And if we want to think about what is a just and free in society in which most people have a lot of agency, one answer to this can be let's go to more human-scale technologies. Right? Now, obviously, anything created by the robots that can only be maintained by robots, I mean, in this story, won't, be, won't survive when the robots leave. Those things will have to be replaced with human-scale technologies. Now, what those will be, we don't know. Right? But he wrote this story around the same time he wrote John's World. 
And John's world gives this vision of this agrarian society as better than the technological progressive industrial society. We surrender our knowledge by giving it, we, we don't, it's not so much we surrender our knowledge, we surrender our autonomy and our authority over these systems that we depend on to technocrats. And, and often these technocrats are chosen on a process that we consider meritocracies. Right? We, we say, you went to college, you got the job, you developed this, therefore we give you this power over us. That does not seem to be a sustainable system in terms of kind of human freedom. Now, Murray Bookchin, in his book, Post-Scarcity Anarchism, writes a little bit about this. You know, he, he kind of envisions each society having energy sources that are really local and based on technologies that the local people understood and knew. Now, this is, this is troubling, but, you know, in Star Trek, not to be too esoteric here, probably, hopefully most of you watch some Star Trek. In, in Star Trek... You have the same problem. You have this massive technological society, right? This, the science is beyond anything we have, right? Of course, a lot of it's made up science, but it's beyond anything we have now and anything we know. And how does Star Trek doesn't create a technocracy? Yeah, you have Starfleet and, and there seems to be hierarchies and seem to be some people who specialize. But you see again and again when they talk about the education and the, you know, the children, how they're taught, everyone. I think they did a lot of this in Deep Space Nine series where you see you had more child characters. The kids learn the science. They can use these computers. They can use the system. So you just imagine them, uh, everyone is smart enough to, to manage this very complex system. And then you, you solve this problem, right? Everyone has access because everyone is educated and smart enough to do that. I don't know if that's realistic in the world we live in or in any world that we can foresee living in. Those in power often refuse to share responsibility and then justify it with inanities such as, quote, well, those lower classes will have a more authentic artistic sense. And this is actually what we get here in, in James P. Crow, right? Yeah, they can't run our science. They can't run our systems or our politics, but they're really good artists, right? They have a really authentic artistic sense, right? So Dick here is not only warning about the logic of race-based exploitation and exclusion, but also suggesting to us the dangers of getting too much, giving too much authority or granting too much authority to a technocratic class. So that's, there's a couple ways we're going to read the story. And I, I really do think as a straight up racial allegory, it's a really troublesome ending. But it does still have a lot of interesting things to say to us, I think, about technocracy and meritocracy and their relationship between the two and you know and force us to me think about what kind of system should we create where we can inoculate ourselves from the rise of an undemocratic technocracy well that does it for this episode on james p crow thank you so much for listening um, in the next episode we'll be looking at small town um, a story about urban planning Imposes my tired thoughts once on that leaving dies, that leaving dies, that leaving.